Development discoursed in the mainstream is often defined in terms of economic growth that privileges modernity, urbanization and scientific expertise. Across the global south this model has been internalized and reflected in a national focus on science and STEM education. Our guest today is Ayuzuddin Anwa, a researcher from the University of Oxford Department of Education who specializes in comparative and international studies. On this episode we explore and focus on rural young people's aspirations related to development as they engage with STEM education as the state's instrument for national development in Malaysia. Aizuddin, welcome to Halftime Scholars. It's wonderful to have you on this episode. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Can you tell me about your research journey before your PhD project? So before I came to do my current PhD at the University of Oxford, I was actually working professionally back home in Malaysia where where I'm from in the what we would call the corporate philanthropy sector with a with a national oil company in Malaysia. And I had spent around 4 years doing that and essentially what that entailed was working with the philanthropy department of the organization specifically in education related projects and that meant partnering with government and organizations in order to deliver uh, support for education initiatives that also aligned with the mandate of the oil companies so in that regard it's most of the initiatives were related to the promotion of science education and promotion of careers in science particularly in the oil and gas industry and through that experience uh, i had the opportunity to visit many parts of malaysia that i otherwise would not have gone to to visit schools and to learn from the work of many organizations in order to be able to render the kind of support that the company would provide and essentially my current research uh, stemmed from that kind of exposure to the various facets of education science education in particular and i had come to the work from a background also in science so i studied chemical engineering before i started working and so a lot of my work then was informed by my understanding and my own experience of pursuing a particular path uh, in science education leading up to my own undergraduate studies in in chemical engineering so you mentioned you had a background in you know, science working in uh, oil and gas so what inspired you then to research the connections between science as a means for development uh, stem education and uh, rural uh, young people's aspirations so i i'm not from a rural area in malaysia so i grew up in the city but my mother is actually from a rural part of malaysia in on the east coast of the peninsula and so when i was growing up i was uh, continuously sort of shuttling between these two worlds so my parents worked in the urban area but eventually usually at the end of the school year we would go back to my mother's hometown to spend the school holiday and so i've always grown up with this consciousness of of the differences in in lived experience in these urban and rural communities and i've always been fascinated by people's ways of viewing life and in these two areas and also the kind of disparity that exists between urban and rural areas of Malaysia and i knew that when i wanted to do a phd i wanted to study something related to rural education because my mother is from a rural area but um in my family 
my mother's sisters, two of them, were actually teachers in rural areas, and my grandfather was also a teacher in a rural area. So I also grew up around this consciousness around um, the limits and also the possibilities of rural education. And I suppose my PhD project in many ways is a combination of these personal and professional biographies. Um, and so initially when I started the PhD, I wanted to specifically study uh, career aspirations among uh, rural young people. But I'm sure as you know as well, through the discussions with supervisors, our research areas and interests actually change and evolve. And so early in my a discussion with my supervisors. One of my supervisors actually recommended that I read this work by Arturo Escobar called Encountering a Development. And Arturo Escobar is a scholar, scholar of uh, post-development studies. And reading this work actually sort of opened up my imagination around aspirations that are bigger than just careers among rural young people. But to look at careers as of course, an important dimension of what young people aspire to, but beyond that, um, careers is also a means to something else, uh, a means to living a life that is worthwhile, a life that has meaning, and in many ways, those discussions in rural areas are shaped by the concept of development, because development is a project which is synonymous with modernity and with progress, and within that, um, science is a very central dimension. Uh, science and technology are uh, important instruments of development. And so my PhD study evolved at the confluence of that kind of thinking around development and around science and the role of education as part of uh, that whole uh, project of modernity. Like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting intersection of these different disciplines. So if you look back on your own history, um, you mentioned family members being part of a, a rural setting uh, and those different influences and the, the, the recommendation of your supervisor to read literature around aspirations. Did that start you thinking about your own aspirations about when you were growing up, about development, about upward mobility, things like that? What, what do you think were your, some of your reflections on these disciplines? Very interesting question. I think I haven't thought of it consciously before you sort of pose this question, but I suppose my own thinking around development is when I was growing up, I suppose, was influenced by this exposure that I mentioned earlier between being in an urban area, but also having these sort of back and forth journeys to rural communities where my, my mother is from. And when I look at my own mother's trajectory of life, I suppose when you think of social mobility through education, she's an example of, of that kind of that potential. My mother, she is from a rural area, but she is the first in her family to, to go to university. And that is off the back of the promise of education because she had an opportunity to, to, to study uh, engineering in the urban part of the country and so she migrated and moved and because of that she got a job in the civil service and settled in the urban area and now that both of my parents have retired they've since moved back to my mother's hometown and so growing up seeing that seeing where my mother was from and where my, where my mother has gone since then I suppose speaks to the idea of aspirations of rural people about development and also growing up in, in an urban area, but also visiting my mother's hometown, uh, exposed the kind of discrepancies that 
uh, exist, uh, particularly in terms of technology. So when I was growing up, I remember when we would go home to my mother's village, or what we call Kampung in Malay, in order to get to my mother's, my grandfather's, or my grandparents' home, we would have to cross the river that separated the main road to where they were staying. And so I have memories of growing up watching development in action first, uh, having to wait on the other side of the river for uh, our grandparents to come and pick us up on a boat. And then eventually a bridge was built, a concrete bridge where cars can cross to the other side. First, uh, having no phone reception at all growing up uh, in my mother's hometown to eventually having landline and mobile reception. So those are sort of the, the moves of development that have taken place. And so when I think of development, I think of these two things of social mobility, but also penetration of technology and how that changes people's lives in rural communities in good ways, like I mentioned, but also in strangely quite terrible ways as well because of the encroachment of development. My um, nieces and my nephews and niece will never have the opportunity to go down to the river to, to play in the river because it's now quite dirty and muddy because of deforestation upstream. And because of that, there is a changing pattern of migration where uh, people are constantly moving out of rural areas because of the lack of opportunities. And so there is a kind of uh, in some way hollowing out of rural spaces because of uh, opportunities elsewhere. So I'm quite ambivalent in that sense about development, um, because although there has been many positive things, there have also been quite negative things as well that have come about because of development. Yeah, I think to us through a journey, um, many of us growing up has, has faced, uh, my experience in Sri Lanka is very similar. You mentioned the phone reception, the roads being tarred, uh, things like that. It becomes quite, uh, it just throws up vivid memories of your childhood. And, and it's very interesting that you point out your nieces and nephews, their experience, which is totally different. Something I'd like to pick up on what you mentioned. What is some of the, um, I guess, what is the, not, I won't say dominant narrative, but what are some of the narratives today you feel in Malaysia about development in general from what you had seen growing up? I think today the narrative of development, and I don't think this is particularly unique to Malaysia, but I think in many parts of the developing world, is a kind of dominated by the discourse of uh, the economic growth and as being the central driver of development. And in many ways, what was initially seen as the means of development has become the ends of development. So economic growth has become something which is needed to be pursued as opposed to a means to become developed. And when we think of development, we can think of development in many ways. Um, Some people think of development particularly through economic metrics, so GDP and all those things. But if we think of development uh, in the way that Amartya Sen talks about development as being people's ability to have the freedom to lead the kind of lives that they have reason to value, these are people have various reasons to, to lead the kind of lives that they want. And some of them are, of course, economic reasons, but there are many other reasons as well. But I think that in Malaysia, the this economic narrative has overshadowed many dimensions of development. Uh, to the detriment of uh, many parts of of other parts, other dimensions, such as the environment and social cohesion. And this economic, economistic timber of development has pervaded, um, not just in sort of the sort of technocratic dimensions of development, but also in the ways that development is, is being translated into education, which is primarily what I'm studying, 
And that is where the role of science education is central to the project of development and project of modernity. And so I think that that economic dimension is definitely something that is most dominant in terms of what how development is being characterized, is being discussed um, uh, in the public sphere in Malaysia today. We spoke about development, science, education. Uh, if you could give us a bit more detail or information about your research topic itself, about the project per se, and what sort of uh, what sort of gap were you looking at, or did you identify to start working on your PhD? So the the purpose of my study essentially is to explore this very big idea of development uh, in Malaysia, particularly, but to look at the idea of development from the lens of rural young people's aspirations from the grassroots uh, as they encounter STEM education in school as what I argue the intermediary of development that is levied by the nation state from above. So I'm looking at uh, development from the grassroots, uh, from the view of rural young people. And this idea came about um, through the study of the literature in two aspects. So like I mentioned from above, and what I mean, what I mean from above is looking at a lot of the literature around science for development and the role of science in development, particularly in the developing world, or what we term as the global south. And my survey of this literature, uh, although primarily focused on nation states, uh, cannot avoid looking at literature that is uh, around the role of international organizations. So looking at the role of UNESCO, for example, at the OECD and what, how, how development is being portrayed by these organizations and how they influence the discourse of development in many parts of the developing world. And certainly many parts, many of the discourses are in, around science for development uh, take on this as I mentioned earlier, economic sort of uh, imperative for development and the role of science for economic development. And in order to counter that sort of overwhelming narrative from above, I also conducted literature research around the aspirations of young people, particularly rural young people in the global south. And what uh, I see is that although there are a lot of research around rural young people's aspirations, much of these aspirations are still around sort of career-driven uh, uh, aspirations, which ties to the sort of economistic dimension from above. But also literature increasingly points to the, the sort of polyphonic nature of aspirations around other things uh, that rural young people aspire to. And what is unique in, in rural communities is a strong sense of attachment to place and a strong sense of attachment to um, uh, relationality and social webs in these rural spaces, which I suppose run counter to a more sort of universalized modern uh, discourse uh, of development that seeks to place people as these sort of mobile bodies that can, you know, move around spaces. And, and so the centrality of space and place in that discourse is less salient than if we were to look at it from the grassroots, where among young people who are placed in specific places and have attachment to those spaces. So the, the gap of my study is at the intersection of these of these searches of literature from above and from below uh, to suggest a space where uh, we can look at the idea of development, which is often talked about in policy circles uh, as a technocratic thing from above, but to look at it from how young people themselves as uh, the subjects or the object and also the objects of development and what they think about development and how they can open up our imagination about what development can be. So if you can actually share some of those goals themselves, so 
uh, you mentioned and you mentioned previously as well, like the, I guess the technocratic and the, the view from above is more driven around the, the economics side of uh, development. If we actually go a little bit more into the methodology of your research, um, if you could share how, what was the methodology you adopted and maybe share some of the actual nature of rural education in Malaysia, like what you found from when you were studying um, and, and visiting your parents uh, or your family when you were young, what are some of the differences you found? So in order to conduct my PhD study, I adopted this methodology, which is called the comparative case study. And the idea of a comparative case study is to transcend the boundedness of a traditional case study, which is often confined to a particular place or um, a particular unit of analysis, whereas a comparative case study uh, looks at the centrality of moving across sites and scales in order to understand and to follow a particular phenomenon. Uh, I'm interested in following the phenomenon of aspirations of development um, across sites and scales. And so, as I discussed earlier, the idea from the top, uh, the above and from below is quite amenable to this comparative case study because it allows me to look at the the vertical dimension of aspiration uh, from traversing from the sort of global national space uh, around what the idea of development is and what is the aspiration around development at that level and then to move to the various places such as uh, the school as an institution that is an intermediary of that, uh, that national aspiration and among individuals that I study which are these rural young people and what they view as their aspirations of development and see the interaction and the sort of processual nature of these aspirations of development. Various methods in order to be able to follow uh, this particular phenomenon and that involved an ethnographic dimension where I spent a significant amount of time in a particular school in the east coast of peninsular Malaysia but also complemented by interviews and document analysis uh, at the capital where the majority of the development discourse uh, at the sort of national level takes place. And traversing through these sites and scales allows me to look at the various ways that these uh, discourses are propagated, are appropriated, are internalized, and are sort of reshaped in various ways by various agents, uh, among which are uh, experts and policymakers at the capital, teachers in school, science uh, and technology, science, technology, engineering and mathematics related teachers in schools, as the agents of development, as I term them, and then among rural young people who are the, the objects of development. But because of my studies focus to foreground their views, I take them to be much more of the subjects of development as the narrators of, uh, of what development is to them and what development can be. Uh, in terms of what uh, I found to be the, the nature and the characteristics of rural education based on my um, uh, empirical study is a kind of, um, so the nature of education in Malaysia is quite centralized. And what I mean by this is the government does not make any kind of differentiation in terms of the curriculum of what is being studied across the country, a population of 31 million people, with various, across various geographies, various levels of urbanization, the, the curriculum is remarkably standardized, and that includes the science, uh, technology, engineering, and mathematics STEM curriculum. And so, although I was doing my research in a rural school, 
they, they use the same textbooks that would have been used in the capital, that would have been used in much more well-resourced boarding schools or uh, in urban schools. So to look at the kind of contrast between what the government intended to deliver quite uniformly across the country and the realities of rural education in terms of the availability of opportunities for young people to be exposed to dimensions that would be relevant to their lives in terms of what they study in the classroom, in terms of opportunities to to engage in a kind of science education that is that of course must be accompanied by the availability of resources, things like facilities, laboratory facilities, expertise, opportunity to be exposed to STEM careers, for example, which are not as readily apparent in rural areas as they are in urban areas. It's very interesting for me to see in this rural space, a kind of the way that um, science education is being delivered uh, in order to to fulfill the aspiration at the national level. So I can give one example being the 60-40 policy and what this policy is, which was instituted in the 1970s by the government, is a policy to uh, a target essentially of having 60% of upper secondary school enrollment across uh, the country in what we call the science stream or science package of subjects. Now, of course, it's called the STEM package of subjects uh, compared to the arts package of subjects. Um, and this reflects the government's logic of pushing more students into science in order to grow the economy, in order to become more developed and to become a high income nation. So that, uh, so the policy in itself, uh, I argue, is a embodiment of the science for development discourse in the country. and. Uh, but particularly in the rural school that I study, this policy is, is quite interesting in a sense that the students in the school historically have not been able to meet the requirement of the policy. Uh, so there is a minimum um, academic requirement for students to be able to uh, be eligible to select a STEM package of subjects in upper secondary education. And most of the students in the school that I do research, and certainly in, this, in the region where I do research, do not qualify to be in, in this package of subjects. But uh, the policy is that the schools cannot close the science classes because of in, the need to uphold the policy. And so what happens in, in this school is that the, the teachers have themselves lowered the requirement for, in order to keep the class open and running. And that does two things, one of which is potentially open up the opportunity for students to be able to take up STEM pathways and, and have futures related to those pathways. But on the other hand, perhaps uh, ill-equips them to take on the expectations of this pathway. There's always a, a tension and a paradox between the uh, aspirations of the government in terms of what they espouse to do through a policy uh, and then, you know, young people on the ground choosing, uh, I guess, different pathways. If you could maybe elaborate a bit more, what were some of the other findings that you that uh, that you discovered? And also, was there anything that really surprised you? When I talked earlier about moving across these various sites and scales, so the findings, much of the findings at the national level are quite expected in terms of being very driven by a kind of science for development discourse and a focus on an economic logic to that discourse. And so uh, when I talk to experts and policymakers, many of them will look outwards into the developed world as examples that we need to emulate. So there are examples of looking at, just at our neighbor Singapore or looking at South Korea as examples of um, 
how heavy investments in science and technology has led to development uh, and led to high income. But uh, at that level of discourse, there's also a kind of embeddedness of science into the kind of national aspiration. So what I was surprised to find uh, is that even in our national principle, which I recall when I was younger, we would recite at school in the morning assembly every week these sort of national principles. The preamble to the national principles actually contains a statement that is focusing on science and technology. And I didn't realize this when I was in school because we never read the preamble. We always read the principles. But one of the dimensions of the preamble is an aspiration for developing a progressive society that is based on science and technology. So even at the outset of building a kind of national consensus around you know, what Malaysia should become, there is this central embeddedness of science and technology uh, into that, that aspiration of citizenship. And that carries through across education, of course, one being socialized in the uh, enactment of these national principles at the assembly, of course, but also uh, in the ways that this, this enactment is embedded in other instruments of education. So part of my study is to look at uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics-related textbooks. And when we first open the textbook, there is the national principles on the inside cover of every textbook that is issued by the ministry. And the preamble is clearly stated in that textbook, uh, this focus on developing a progressive society uh, through science and technology. And as we look through science textbooks, many of the kind of imageries and the kind of blurbs that you would see in the textbook focus on development of a national identity around science and technology. So, for example, if you look at the physics and chemistry textbook, uh, there is this focus on how we have managed to create a national space program, which has sent our first astronaut into space. Now, whether or not that is should be a priority of development is something that can be questioned because of you know, various other competing dimensions of development that needs to be addressed. But there is this kind of aspirational quality to follow the kind of uh, trajectory of development through science and technology that has been talked about, you know, the space wars in the developed world, right, like Russia and the U.S., for example, around science and technology, of course. And so even in the textbooks, we see this kind of the permeation, either consciously or subconsciously, of a science for development discourse and a kind of attempt to shape uh, people's uh, aspirations or socialize people or young people into the kind of uh, aspirations of development um, that the government intends for in order to become this idea of a developed country. Uh, at, at the level of uh, students themselves, in terms of what they aspire to or their ideas of development, some of them, these the ideas are quite varied across the many students that I that I worked with. So some of them talked about uh, how they are very concerned about employment, and future of employment is something that is quite pressing to them. You know, these are students who are sixteen year olds. They will they have one more year of secondary school, and eventually they will choose their path, whether or not they want to go into higher education. Some of the students uh, in the area go immediately into employment, uh, often low-skill, low-pay jobs. And so they talk about employment as being a central dimension of aspirations around development. And certainly this is not surprising because many people, young people, 
when we think of the the literature around young people's aspirations, careers is 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 a big topic of of aspiration among young people. But one of the interesting things I found is the kind of ambivalence that young people have around uh, careers. So on the one hand, while they are they are trying to push the government to offer more jobs uh, in order for them to have a better future, they are also less optimistic when they look at their environment. So uh, I recall one student telling me that there isn't much point in studying so hard, uh, and students usually deem uh, STEM pathways to be much more requiring much more effort compared to the arts uh, subjects. Whether or not this is true is debatable. And, and so they feel like, why should I study so hard in these STEM pathways, go to university, you know, study engineering or something that is STEM related, and then not end up finding employment. So they see their neighbors and their cousins go to university, study really hard, stress, you know, over grades, but then eventually come home and work at the local pizza hut. So there is this kind of a discrepancy between what the government says that if you go into sciences there are more job opportunities we can grow the economy versus the acute reality of unemployment uh, at these levels of um, uh, skills so even though the government says the government pushes people to go into the stem fields the reality is that there are not enough stem jobs in the market in order to meet this supply so young people in my study some of them are quite pessimistic about the potential and the promise of STEM education. And because of that, they feel like, why should I even go into STEM pathways if I can uh, have a stress-free you know, uh, experience in school and then have a similar kind of job as my friends who go into STEM education anyways, uh, or have other kinds of jobs which are more related to uh, another dimension of development. So over time, we see among young people a changing nature of aspiration uh, in terms of careers. So in the past, while well, we think of careers in a traditional sense of, you know, in the developing world, the, the usual suspects are, you know, to become doctors and to become engineers and to become accountants, these professions of modernity. But nowadays, the professions of modernity have changed in ways that young people are aspiring to become YouTube content creators and gamers. And these are, of course, technology related too, but they are changing in ways that perhaps does not require the kind of education that we imagine students required um, in the more sort of professional related careers that we have uh, seen before. So that is also an interesting dimension that I see. Interesting how you have discovered, I guess, a, a different ways technology is them, them going away from technology and then coming back through these new forms of, uh, I guess, economic enterprise. I actually uh, wanted to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned specifically on that aspect as well. One was in these, I would say, non-traditional jobs that you mentioned, did you find that friends might influence some of the decisions of these young people? But did you find that in the, in the evidence, uh, some of the students talking about or young people talking about these non-traditional jobs where they have actually, you know, they spoke about this friend or that person in their community who might have influenced these types of jobs for them to think about in terms of, you know, YouTube content creators or being part of the gig economy, things like that. Was that something that you discovered? In terms of this this aspiration to move towards these sort of new novel forms of employment in the gig economy, 
I didn't necessarily find in my conversation with these young people evidence that they brought from, you know, their friends or family members or people that they know. So many of these kind of aspirations stem from looking outward through the internet basically so you know looking into youtube some of them some of the young boys especially are very keen into these sort of online games uh, that they play on their mobile phones and so that is a, a i suppose a window into their that shaping their view of the future yeah so the internet i think is a very interesting uh, tool that that is opening up a lot of possibilities for students in in rural areas um, although I have to say that the internet penetration in rural spaces are still very much a luxury uh, as opposed to a, um, a ubiquity, simply because for some people, and this is uh, quite relevant in the current contemporary situation that young people find themselves in, where many of them have to move online to to study because of the pandemic. Um, and so when I spoke to the teachers while I was doing field work, part of my fieldwork was in fact disrupted by the pandemic and by the lockdown in Malaysia. And when we eventually had the opportunity to return to school, the teachers have told me that uh, for some of the students, uh, access to internet is not something that comes readily available, uh, particularly because of two reasons. One is financial. So in order to purchase these sort of mobile data packages, they might not have access to the funds in order to do that. Um, but also infrastructural, and so some parts of the space that I study uh, have less penetration of these sort of 3G, 4G coverage of internet. And so I would say this, this, this concept of exposure is also a big issue that is relevant to the findings of my study, is particularly in terms of STEM uh, education, the teachers have told me that uh, the main challenge is exposure. So although they can teach through the textbooks, they can talk about their own experiences, for a lot of young people, being able to see these things firsthand is very important. And these experiences do not come readily available for, uh, for rural young people compared to their urban counterparts. As you mentioned, not knowing what it looks like in reality is something, especially in the field, as opposed to the arts field, where, you know, if one is listening to music or watching theater or where you probably can see some of these things in your own community, but high-tech jobs and industries and things like that, it's hard to imagine, to, especially for a 16, 17-year-old student who hasn't been exposed to a lot of what life has to, has to offer. Uh, that's quite, quite interesting. And I, I'd like to pick up on something else you mentioned earlier. We were talking all this time about the aspirations of the young people the focus or the, as you mentioned, the subjects of development or of your study. You you did mention as well in terms of the aspirations of the government or the agents of development. It's quite clear that there is a gap or a mismatch or a disconnect between what they espouse. You mentioned the preambles in the textbooks when you were growing up, you had to recite them. Once the students come into completing their studies and going into higher education and trying to find out, you know, look for employment. So there's a gap and that's something I guess most developing nations go through. How do you feel and from your work in Malaysia, does the government address this? And if the, the aspiration is to be a high income nation in terms of uh, with a STEM driven economy, this is going to be a continuous process that will, they will be going through. And have you found any evidence to see what uh, the strategy 
is from the government side to meet some of these aspirations to actually maybe reduce the gap in terms of opportunities uh, that could be available. How did you find that uh, landscape? That's an interesting question. Uh, and I think it's also an important question to think about in terms of how I will eventually disseminate the findings as well. I think that the gap or the sort of mismatch that happens in many ways is because of the nature of policymaking in Malaysia, which is very centralized and very sort of top-heavy, concentrated in obviously urban spaces. And while these experiences are the experiences that I talk about are not are by no means novel things. I mean, many people, if you talk to people on on the ground, many of them, many of these things that I that I have described, are common knowledge among the the people, as it were, compared to you know technocrats and policymakers. So I suppose because of pol- because of the centralized nature of policymaking being very top heavy, and even education being very top heavy and sort of driven from the top. There is not much room for these sort of for these sort of grassroots voices to be to be escalated upwards, because they are not involved in policymaking because they are not and even if they are their voices are sought, it is often a very sort of one one directional kind of process where you know you might have policymakers come down to do like a workshop at a school or to gather a few teachers from schools. But then you don't really know what happens with these findings because after that process, teachers and students' voices are no longer involved in the process of policymaking. So I don't necessarily see how these this gap or this tension can be addressed without addressing the, the logic or the process of policymaking uh, in Malaysia. And and to move towards a more sort of co-construction model of developing policy, developing programming. So in, in some ways, although I started this, this, this study with a keen interest in policy, I'm finding that to work in these sort of marginal spaces outside of the realm of policy or at the edge of policy is much more interesting and much more exciting simply because regardless of how the government forms policy, you know, at the, at the central level, policies continue to be reappropriated and reimagined at the margins and how people decide to to continue on living regardless of how policy is being made. So moving on, um, what were some of the challenges you found uh, conducting the study? One of the challenges that I've been thinking about and I continue to think about is the idea of um, the co-construction of knowledge. And of course, this extends beyond this finding, but also speaks to a kind of philosophy of doing research, particularly because uh, in many post-colonial spaces, research have often been seen as a very extractive process. So you see these researchers uh, as quote-unquote experts come in to do research. They extract knowledge you know, from grassroots voices, and then they go back to academies and institutions at the core and, and profit from them, essentially, right? Get, a, get publications, you know, get um, promotions, and get recognition off of the voices of essentially marginalized communities. And I think there is an ethics to that that needs to be thought of, um, particularly for us as researchers who come from these post-colonial spaces, to avoid uh, uh, propagating and reproducing these kinds of uh, structures of power in knowledge production. So when I think of my study, uh, a component of my study is quite participatory in a sense that I encourage the young people to take photographs of their environments uh, as ways of describing the study. Uh, part of my study 
that become that I think is increasingly becoming a central dimension, although I didn't anticipate it at the start, is this STEM uh, project that we worked on together, part of this fieldwork. So early in my fieldwork, one of the teachers approached me, and so this teacher is the head of the, the panel of uh, STEM subjects, and she said, every year the school receives a lot of letters you know, from the ministry promoting these sort of science competitions, but they've never had enough time and resources to be able to participate. And so this particular year, so last year when I did my field work, by virtue of me being there at the school, uh, the teachers saw that it was a great opportunity for the students to be able to participate uh, for the first time. Uh, in this STEM uh, innovation competition. And so I was essentially the resource person for that for that project. And I, I found it to be a, a good opportunity for ex, for exposure for the young people. I'm, I certainly am not an expert in innovation or in, in STEM-related innovation, but I have had experiences in the past and from my professional life of working in, in these spaces. So while I was there at school, I in some ways served as the mentor for this for these young people's participation. Uh, in in this project over these couple of months that they were preparing and eventually went on to, to this competition. And so that part of co-construction uh, I found to be, for me, a project in building young people's capacity to aspire. And, and essentially we worked on this project and for the first time for some of them they got the opportunity to travel to the to the one to the capital of the state to go to the university and participate in this STEM competition and really open their eyes in terms of you know other students their age who have been doing this quite regularly every year right participating in these kind of competitions but for them because it's the first time they get to see how you know if these other young people their age are able to do this you know certainly why it it's no reason that they could not also do the same thing if they were given the same kinds of opportunities and exposures to participate and so for them, it was a very eye-opening experience, and it's very—it's a great experience as well because they ended up winning one of the medals in in the competition, and so it was a huge confidence booster for these young people in terms of seeing that they can also participate uh, in these competitions. They are, they also have a space essentially in STEM, and this story is very interesting because very recently one of the young people in my study sent me a WhatsApp message uh, of a video of this technology of producing uh, building material from, you know, uh, single-use plastic, which is kind of related to the project that we worked on when we did this project together. So I see that as being this kind of continuation of aspiration around a particular dimension of STEM education that is relevant to their day-to-day -day lives because although they are in a rural space, they come in, into contact with, with the use of plastic, you know, in many ways in, in their lives as part of modernity and, and development, of course. It covers a lot of very key parts of, of the co-creation and also, I guess, the education part of it uh, for the students. So moving on, uh, Isadine, to the next part of our conversation, you are in the stage of writing up PhD and, and you know, you're having different, I guess, conversations with yourself, with your supervisor and, you know, maybe other related colleagues. Communication of our work or your work is a very important part of our PhD journey. Do you find that uh, you make any adjustments to your, to the way you communicate, you know, between conferences, you know, journals? Because sometimes dealing with economy is some people might not find it very technical, but 
talking about STEM, science field, aspirations, all these different opposing or concepts. How do you find that? What's the strategy around that for you in terms of communication of your work? So communication and dissemination of findings is eventually a, a very important step that will take place as I am writing up and finishing my PhD. I think that True, as you mentioned, there are various audiences uh, for the kind of study that I'm doing, and these different audiences have different sets of concerns or interests uh, tied to the project. Um, and so I will have to think about, essentially, which of the dimensions of my project are most salient for each of these audiences. Even when I think of where to place the findings of these, this, these study is, is also a very interesting challenge in a sense of where does it sit, right? Is it a development studies thing? Is it a science technology studies thing? Uh, of course, it's an education thing, but where in education? Is it a science education thing? Is it a comparative education thing? So there are many sort of avenues, even within the sort of traditional academic space of where this kind of work can sit. So it, in some ways, it's quite interesting that it's, and exciting that it's quite interdisciplinary. But having said that, I'm also quite conscious of the practicalities around, you know, finding your place in academia and, you know, wanting to be able to have the kind of conversations with the right set of people. So I'm thinking around, so form and structure and language is a very, are very important dimensions that I'm thinking about uh, in terms of moving forward in terms of dissemination. But one central dimension, I suppose, that I think thread through all these different sort of spaces, audiences, is I think the the potential that stories hold to capture imagination. So even outside of my academic work, I, I write fiction, I write creatively and have published. So I see this PhD project in some ways as trying to marry these uh, dimensions of trying to tell stories, I suppose, beautifully in ways that are able to capture imagination and cap a different sense of possible reality. And I think storytelling is something that is that that can translate across many mediums and across many audiences because it's a very human dimension. So I'm trying to think of, you know, of course, writing up the PhD in a way that is, you know, that can be quite narrative in in, in its structure and uh, and are embedded with all these stories that I've uh, had the privilege to um, acquire from the participants who've you know very generously shared their lives with me. So the how to think of you know, storytelling as a way of engaging, not just in a cognitive sense, of, in a, at an intellectual level, but also in an effective sense at, a, at the emotional level. And I suppose perhaps even if the kind of findings that the, the study produces doesn't reach uh, policymakers, you know, in the, in the language of policy, right, or in the potential to change policy, uh, hopefully these stories will, will be able to open up kind of public discussion or a public imagination around development in ways that sort of technocratic, very sort of dry uh, scientific language is unable to or uh, unable to reach people, uh, you know, beyond this sort of set of policymakers that are sort of, you know, making the, the discourse. So I see storytelling as being a central dimension that I'm interested to focus on as a way of dissemination and, and as a way of hopefully uh, contributing to, to to the discussion around development and around the role of education. I, I actually subscribe to the storytelling method as well, being able to relate through stories. And it's very important. And I, like when you were sharing your experiences, a lot of you get the visual of what the experience you're trying to share, which is a, is an important 
way of connecting with different audiences. And I think, like you mentioned, storytelling and being relatable and being kind of, sometimes you have to go through the technical route, but I, I'm personally a believer of, uh, you know, storytelling and making it very easy to understand for your audience. And I totally am on, on board with the way of uh, articulating one's work. Aizuddin, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today on Halftime Scholars, and I wish you all the best, and thank you for sharing your wonderful insights, painting that picture quite vividly on this episode. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Suren. It's been a very great opportunity to have this conversation, and I enjoyed it very much. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. If you like us, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and join us for the next episode.